Hi, Melanie here from Aviation Tours, unique itineraries for aviation enthusiasts, taking you to some of the most amazing air shows and events in the UK and Australia. They're leisurely, comfortable, fun, escorted, and to all the places you've been wanting to visit. If independent travels out of your comfort zone, or you just prefer the good company of fellow enthusiasts, on a tour taking in the best aviation, motoring and military museums, take a look at our website, aviationtoursnz.com, for more info and join us on the trip of a lifetime. Or call me for a chat on 021 076 8308. Wings Over Britain is proudly supported by the New Zealand Bomber Command Association. Telling the stories of Bomber Command and the New Zealanders who served. Wings Over Britain and the Wings Over New Zealand show greatly acknowledges the fantastic support from Peter and Carola Wheeler of the Hauraki Brewing Company. And we'd like to acknowledge the awesome support from Mel and Kev Salisbury and Aviation Tours NZ. And a huge thanks to all the others out there who kindly supported the tour and the series. Without them, the series wouldn't have been made. Vintage Aviation News is pleased to support Wings Over Britain and Wings Over New Zealand. And we'll be checking in with reports as Dave's tour progresses. Vintage Aviation News is an organization founded by a group of passionate vintage aviation enthusiasts who love to share the history and technology aviation museums preserve for the public. It's our intention to play a role in safeguarding the heritage of these beautiful machines by providing increased awareness and education through the use of internet-based digital media. Vintage Aviation News is an online news resource dedicated to warbirds, aviation museums, vintage aviation, and aviation heritage, and the many enthusiasts who wish to know more about them. The goal of this site is to provide fresh, daily news content for a large community of aviation fans who visit our page regularly. Vintage Aviation News Online can be found on your usual social media channels and at VintageAviationNews.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to Wings Over Britain on the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I visited the Biggin Hill Memorial Museum and St George's RAF Chapel at Biggin Hill. We start off hearing a little bit of history about former RAF Biggin Hill. We're sitting in the garden of, uh, or just outside the Nightingale Cafe with the uh, Memorial Chapel Chapel in front of us at Biggin Hill, and uh, I'm sitting here with Dave Coles. How are you? Very well. Pleased to meet you, Dave. Now you're a, a guide here. 
I am a guide. I'm volunteer here with the museum staff and uh, we're open um, from Tuesdays right through till Sundays and uh, it's, it's a lovely little museum. It's open between 10 and 5 and we're really here to dedicate, um, uh, uh, recognise the, the, the battles that went on here against the, the tyranny of dictatorship, you know, and it sort of says about the history of Biggin Hill going right back to the First World War uh, with the origins of radio sets in, in being applied to aeroplanes for communication work for reconnaissance purposes on the Western Front. Uh, the original uh, idea of reconnaissance was a man sitting in the aeroplane, a two-seat aircraft usually, and uh, they wrote down everything they saw on a piece of paper, uh, fly back to our lines again, drop the piece of paper over the side of the aeroplane, that would come fluttering down, usually land in a muddy puddle somewhere and so it caused problems. Yep. They initially tried doing uh, radio uh, wireless telegraphy, which is Morse code, but again you need, it was tricky because you need a flat surface for a Morse key, yep. and that had to be mounted on the outside of the aircraft on the fuselage, and that meant the poor observer had to stand up in his seat, connect up radio uh, battery sets beforehand, unwind 30 foot of cable underneath the aeroplane, then he could lean over and tap out the message on the Morse key on the side of the aeroplane while the aeroplane's bouncing around in turbulence as well. They would receive the messages on the ground, but often they would be garbled. Right. Um, in 1915, as the First World War progressed, the Marconi Radio Company over at Brooklyn's airfield actually manufactured a small radio set that was light enough and powerful enough to be used in an aircraft. And the Royal Engineers who were supplying equipment to the Royal Flying Corps heard about it asked and did a deal with Marconi if they could make some of these things on their behalf and they worked with the Marconi engineers down at a place called Woolwich which yep. is on the uh, south side of the River Thames and the nearest airfield to there was a place called Joyce Green now Joyce Green had all sorts of problems being so close to the Thames it was also quite marshy down there um, there was a power station nearby which was causing interference with the with the, with the transmissions, all they were getting was a lot of static resilience noise on the radio sets. So that was another problem. When the aircraft was loaded up with pilots, petrol, radio equipment, batteries which had to be carried, they became quite heavy and they would take off all right, but when they landed in the marshy ground that was down there, the wheels would dig in and the aircraft would flick over. Right. Another problem they had was reliability of the engines down there. They're very, very unreliable engines. Uh, they would often have engine failures and as they took off because the area around the airfield was quite built up there would be no option but to land in the River Thames and in the six months they lost eight crews because when they landed in the Thames the Thames the current would suck the pilots under the water oh wow so the commanding officer there said uh, he requested that his engineers and pilots all go out looking for a better suitable place which was on high ground preferably and dry and uh, he eventually one of these pilots had relatives who lived near Biggin Hill and they saw the large plateau that was uh, on the top of a hill. Uh, there was a mansion house on it and the pilot went into the mansion house uh, and found out who the owners of the land were. Fortunately it was a military man, it was the Stanhope family who are still around, uh, the Earl of Stanhope, the fifth Earl of Stanhope. Permission was granted to give them 40 acres of land on this plateau and they subsequently moved in December 1916 in the middle of winter. And when they came up to Biggin Hill from Joyce Green, uh, there was two foot of snow here. Um, the, yeah. 
There was a hospital there, a small cottage hospital, which was like a large house on the corner of this plot of land. The officers requisitioned that, moved out the patients who were children down to a seaside town with the nurses. And of course, in the middle of winter time, all the officers are nice and snugly warm. But the poor the other, other ranks, or the ORs as they were called then, had to tolerate having to clear away all the snow before they could even put their tents up. Right. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, typical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. One of them complained and said, sir, I need to go to the toilet. And the other officer said, here you are, lad, and passed him a shovel. So <laughs> that's how crude it was when they came here. There was no services whatsoever. They also had to bring up a load of generators with them. And they, as I say, they moved up 500 people from Dartford or where Joyce Green Airfield was yep. uh, in December 1916. But the good news was by July uh, 1917 they'd actually perfected some of these radio sets they got them up to work the problem the main problem they had was the sensitivity of the microphones they were very very fragile yes and in an open cockpit airplane the wind whistling in used to break the small crystals of components inside the microphones lots of the sets would work fine inside a workshop condition or actually when the airplane was stationary yeah. and as soon as they became airborne the wind rushing into the cockpit would damage them but the, the observers used to find that they had to crouch down inside the cockpit out of the wind to use the microphones. Okay. Yeah. But one summer evening in July 1917, they, had, they took off um, sort of a bit downhearted, thinking, well, this might work, might not work. And two aircraft, two Sopwith one and a half Strutters, were fitted with these radio sets and the batteries and everything else that was needed. And the commanding officers said to the two pilots and the observers before they took off, lads, if you can hear each other, as an indication to us on the ground, can you waggle your wings as a single signal to us that you can hear each other? We may not be able to hear you, but you know it's an indication to us to see that everything's okay. Yep. And shortly afterwards, about five or ten minutes up, they, they took off, got to a thousand feet above Biggin Hill and about a hundred yards apart and were flying around in circles. And all of a sudden, both aeroplanes started to waggle your wings and there was a crackling noise on the receiver set on the ground on a, on a table that was outside one of the tents in, on the camp. And they heard the boys talking and everybody went, oh, yes, and a great big celebration. Commanding officer grabbed hold of a microphone of the receiver set on the ground and a transmitter and said, lads, if you can hear me, can you fly further away? And they flew about 10 or 15 miles to the southeast of Biggin Hill to a place called Seven Oaks. Yep and carried on transmitting, and the boys on the ground and everyone could still hear them chatting. Okay. And it was quite, you know, and they flew back once they started to run out of petrol, landed, and a big party was had. But the commanding officer realised then there was another problem. He could hear them chatting, but all he could hear was, <laughs> it was a noise, but it wasn't audible. You know, you couldn't understand a word that the observers were saying. So he thought, well, how are we going to get around that? You know, these, these guys have got to be taught how to speak again. Yes. He'd heard that there was a speech therapist at one of the London theatres in London um, teaching actors how to project their voice and how to speak again with okay. uh, lots of them had from Yorkshire a different type of accent, which people found a little bit more difficult to understand. So he, he persuaded this speech therapist to come to Biggin Hill and to teach his observer. I think it was more of a, <laughs> you will come to Biggin Hill <laughs> and help my boys out. Uh, but yeah, he came here and not under duress, I think, you know, and he, he thoroughly enjoyed his time here teaching these uh, observers how to speak again, how to speak more slowly, pronounce words more clearly. And when they said a message, say it twice. Okay. So you'd say a message 
Also another problem that the commanding officer realized as well, and everybody else realized, when they did a transmission, they kept saying, Biggin Hill, Biggin Hill, Biggin Hill. And he thought, because of the location here, we weren't that far away from France, and those transmissions might have been heard by the enemy. Oh, wow. So he said, well, let's change the word Biggin Hill, and we'll give it a code word. And Biggin Hill then became Dollars, and it stayed as Dollars for a long, long time, I think right up until the Second World War. So it was, hello, Dollars, hello, Dollars, this is Pea Soup 1, Pea Soup 1, you know. And so Pea Soup was, you know, trying to use two-syllable words that he encouraged the observers to say. Yep. And which they did do. And, you know, these imaginary conversations all started absolute gibberish to anybody else and, you know, wouldn't think, well, what's they talking about? You know, right. it didn't, didn't mean a thing. But Pea Soup 1 was a one-and-a-half strutter that was just about to take off and fly around, you know, to test. Right. And so, yeah, the radio school carried on and it was very, very successful. In the meantime as well, what was happening was uh, London was being indiscriminately bombed, bombed by the enemy yeah. and with Zeppelin airships. And the Zeppelins really had a hole over London because they could get right up to 10,000 feet. And in that time, in the First World War, we had no aeroplane that would get up to that height. Right. They would bomb lower down, but as soon as they saw an aeroplane coming towards them, they'd dump their ballast and it would go up like a lift yep. into the sky. Um, so, uh, yeah, they, they had the you know, corner, the sort of thing. And there was a couple of atrocities in London where there, there was a, a school that was bombed and children was killed. Yeah. And there was a big outcry, public outcry, and they said, well, you know, we must defend London. And the defence of London was carried out by the Navy, or the Admiralty. Okay. And the um, Admiralty set up a committee that was called the Smuts Committee. And they decided, this committee, that they should bring back aircraft from the Western Front to defend London. And eight squadrons were brought back. And at the same time, they thought, well, let's utilise the land at Riggan Hill. We could possibly put a fighter squadron there as well. Yep. So we had the, in that situation, at south of the airfield was South Camp, which is where the experiment uh, work was being carried out with radio sets. Yep. And more land was granted. Lord Stanhope again said, yes, you can have a further 70 acres to the northwest of South Camp. And the 70 acres incorporated uh, what is now called North Camp. Okay. And North Camp fighters were situated here. One of the squadrons that was based at a place called Northfield, which is in Essex, not far from here, was quite large. And they split it in half and formed a new squadron. And it was called 141 Squadron. And they were based here with the new Bristol fighter, the Bristol F2B right. biplane. Right. Wonderful aeroplane, 120 miles an hour, very reliable engine, Rolls-Royce Falcon. A pilot sat in the front and a gunner in the back. And there was room in the back. When they did get here, they got very friendly, sort of rivalry going with the South Kent boys who were doing the experiments with radios. One of them suddenly cottoned on and said, well, why don't we fit some of our radio sets just as an experiment in your fighters? There was room. Yeah. Um, you know, they said, well, yeah, they took it. They went like hand in glove. To, it seemed a, a no-brainer at the time. I said, why not? You know, just yeah. as experimental purposes, which was quite fortunately because by the time the spring of 1918 came, um, the enemy had stopped using Zeppelin aircraft and they were using Gotha bombers, which oh, wow. were 70 foot wingspan bombers copied from the Hangley Page 0400, um, which had kept been captured in, in Germany, uh, France rather. And um, they designed this Gotha bomber that was, uh, and I think Strachan, another company, also made a large bomber. And at one time, if any time there was 14 of them came over in one go over London to attempt to bomb London. And the squadrons that were in Essex and the ones at Kent went up to intercept them and, and were quite successful. 
Anyway, the spring of 1918, one of these bombers, the Rogue One, came over Kent and the Admiralty rang up South Camp, first of all, initially, to say, we know that the fighters there have got uh, radios in there. Is there any chance you can get one up to try and intercept this one that's flying over Kent at the moment? They rang up North Camp. North Camp got... Uh, sorry about the jet. It's going to be a bit noisy now, so... There's a, cha a challenger just taking off there, so that's nice in the distance. Yeah, so North Camp were aroused at two o'clock in the morning. They stumbled out of their beds and got the engines going on the Bristol fighters. They were airborne, switched on the radio sets, found that they were working and they could communicate with South Camp. And South Camp were getting directions for the local police force and the Admiralty as to where this bomber was. And so they were given, the, the ground people at South Camp were given the, the pilot and co-pilot, or the observer, directions and to where they thought the bomber was and all of a sudden the the, 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 the pilot and the gunner suddenly said oh you can see it and they flew underneath it and shot at it uh, having you know other squadrons had tried to shoot it down but run out of petrol and ammunition and these boys from 141 which was uh, I can't remember the names I'll think of it in a minute um, yeah anyway these two pilot the pilot and co-pilot found it shot it down and it crashed at a place near Ashford in Kent yeah. and the crew in the front were killed and the survivor in the back the gunner the rear gunner was interrogated and they said to him who was it who shot you down because we know several squadrons have had a go at trying to shoot you down and we want to you know credit them yeah and he said well whoever it was that was flying the new Bristol fighter I've never seen one of those before right and so of course the only squadron that was using the one at that night was one for one, one squadron. So Turner and Barwise, the pilot and co-pilot, yeah. were credited with the Distinguished Flying Cross for shooting down an enemy aeroplane. Fantastic. So that would have been the invention of... Uh, it Victor. was the first, yeah, it was another first for Big and Hill really. It was the use of radio sets as a form of interception. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that was, it was a real first for Big and Hill. Um, so yeah, they were credited with this uh, kill. Yep. And they even got received, the squadron received a, a citation from the Lord Mayor of London saying, well done for biffing the Hun. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was it was gongs all round and cigars all round, so everybody was happy. I think they even went down to retrieve some bits and pieces from the crashed air fault as well for, you know, sort of spoils of war sort of thing. Yep. Swastikas that were, well, not the swastikas, the German crosses that were on the wings. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so they, they retrieved bits and pieces from it. Um yeah, that was it was quite a, a thing. But um, another nice, amusing anecdote was that uh, by the summer of uh, 1918, the enemy had actually stopped bombing London by that time. I think because they were being intercepted more. There was the navy had uh, the admiralty rather had acquired lorries and buses all around London. They were taking the roofs off them and applied uh, their own anti-aircraft guns on them. Okay. Uh, trams were also kitted out with these and searchlights and so became a, a quite an integral uh, network of defence for mm. London with these things because the Navy were the only guys who had actual guns that traversed up into the sky. The The army had guns that would fire across fields but yep. you couldn't crank them right up to, to point the barrels into the sky to shoot at the aircraft. Okay. So it was the Navy's job to, to use their guns to shoot at the uh, aircraft. And anyway, you know, by the summer of 1918, that the enemy had stopped because they were getting hammered, basically. Yep. So it meant that the eight squadrons that were still here in England, that were dispersed around in different airfields that have all suddenly popped up, were getting bored, and they wanted to go back to the Western Front. The generals realised to keep them occupied, they'd have a, an esprit de corps competition, the best squadron. 
and they, you know, you would be able to be called the best squadron and yep. recognised as being the best squadron. Well, as many people know, I'm going to go back to the beginning of 1918 again. In fact, 1st of April 1918, something rather good happened. The Royal, the Royal Air Force was formed by the merger of the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps together yes. to become the Royal Air Force. There was no point in having two different forces doing exactly the same job sort of thing. So the Royal Air Force was formed. Now, the boys at 141 Squadron didn't recognise the Navy. There was a lots of inter-forces um, inter rivalry going on. They resented the Navy big time. Yeah. So when the admirals, uh, when the generals came round here to inspect North Camp, which was part of the competition, best camp, smartest uniforms, a shooting competition, and a radio competition, radio transmission competition. Yeah. They came to North Camp here. The boys were reluctant initially to do it because it was they felt it was going to be like a, a Boy Scout thing, getting another badge on their shoulder sort of thing, you yeah. know. Yeah. But they did it, and they made themselves look really smart. They'd even gone to the extent of actually going into the village the previous couple of nights beforehand and stealing a load of freshly planted trees that have just been put out, <laughs> cut them off at the roots, brought them back to North Camp, stuck them in the ground like lollipops, and they were sitting there. So when the generals came around, they said, oh, this looks fantastic, you've made it look really good. And the old military saying is that if it doesn't move, you paint it white. So the whole curbstones and buildings were all painted white, you yep. know, in Blanco, to make it look really nice. And it was fantastic. And the, the generals reviewed the troops out on the field there, looked them all up and down and thought, hello, you're still in your RFC uniforms, you know, you're still khaki, but you're still smart. And they won that part of the competition as the best and smartest squadron. Right. So one for one were related. They thought, oh, we were going to you know, scrape through by the skin of our teeth there. But the second half of the competition was done at a place called Hornchurch, which is in Essex, just on the... Um, it doesn't exist as an airfield anymore, but it was in those days. Yep. And uh, it was a shooting competition and the radio transmission competition. What they'd done is erected a whole load of... I can describe them as being... Toblerone chocolate bars. They look like eight foot tall triangular constructions with targets painted on them, yeah. um, white circles, and they'd also painted the bullets of each respective squadron with a colour paint so that when they fired at a target, oh, that's green paint, that's 32 squadron, you know, etc. etc. Right, so right. each one was recognised as whose bullets were on the targets. When it came to 141 Squadron, there go, they had a one good pilot who was surname was Sainsbury. Uh, related to the Sainsbury's food markets okay. and he was a good good shot and he jumped in his Bristol fighter took off with the observer in the back or the gunner and they had each squadron had two goes at shooting at your respective target they were told which one to hit you see and they started the dive he started shooting at his target and as he did so the guns jammed on the aircraft the forward firing guns and he said oh blast you know that's a shame yeah. so he had to pull out the dive turn around slow slow slowly fly over the top of the airfield there and the gunner in the back of the aircraft stood up in his seat leant over the pilot's shoulder and cleared the stoppages in the guns because the guns were in the cockpit with him and the, the forward firing guns yes. did that and he said well we'll have another go and i'll dismount my gun on the scarf ring that's in the back of the airplane and shoot over the side of the aircraft between the fuselage and the gap in the wing so they dived down for the second attempt and as they were diving and diving and diving and firing the bullets, and, bah, 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 and uh, they hit the target really well. And all of a sudden, Sainsbury's realised he was getting so carried away, he'd forgotten to pull out the dive. Oh. So he <laughs> pulled back on the control column just at the last minute, yanked back, and the aircraft mushed out of the dive. And as it did so, the back end of the aeroplane, the tail skid included, hit the target, chopped it in half, 
And they went, oh my God. But they got out of it and they landed and a bit dishevelled, you know, yeah. and a bit grey. And General said, well done, lads. You destroyed the target there. You've won the shooting competition. <laughs> So all the other disgruntled squadrons said, he cheated, he chopped it in half, you know. He said, well, yeah. No, no, he destroyed the target. And that was it, you know. So by sort of a, a, a foul, if you like, they actually won the shooting competition. <laughs> the last part of the competition, all these radio sets were laid out on benches for all the generals and reviewing staff to, to listen to these transmissions. Each one of the squadrons was given a, a message on a piece of paper and was told to fly up to a 1,000 feet and relay and transmit the receiver uh, the message that they'd been given back down to the generals on the ground who were listening at the time. Yep. And that was fairly straightforward, and they all did it quite well. And when it came to 141 Squadron, the squadron that was based at Biggin Hill, who were probably the most experienced in using radio sets, they thought they'd make it a little bit more difficult, more of a challenge for them. One of the generals had a, an article from the Daily Telegraph newspaper and the newspaper article was reporting on the Russian Revolution. And it meant that there was lots of Russian names on it, Russian right. places. It was quite a difficult message to relay down to the, the generals. And yeah. they sighed and went, oh, no, we're not going to be able to do this. Anyway, they did. They took off. Um, there was, I'm not sure who the pilot was or the observer, but they took off with this piece of paper, got airborne, started flying around. Now, by chance, back at Biggin Hill, uh, the speech therapist, who by that time was occupying a, a house that was in the village even higher than the Biggin Hill airfield um, height, yep. with a large transmitter and a big aerial outside, that, a lovely mansion house it was, that had been requisitioned, and was listening to all the transmissions being carried out there, and sort of guiding them a little bit, you know, on their own secret frequency. Yeah. He tuned into 141 Squadron's frequency, listened to what they had to do, had by fortune the same newspaper and he transmitted to the, the observer in the back of the aeroplane and said this is how you say General Presnansky this is how you say Burgoresk or whatever it was you know the yeah. names of these Russian towns and he recited that article word perfectly to the observer who then recited it back down on the general's frequency on the ground who were listening word perfectly and they said <laughs> Fantastic. You've won the radio competition. <laughs> so all round they cheated yeah. <laughs> one way and another. And they won the coveted title of Cock Squadron and they were able to paint a cockerel on the side of the aeroplanes after right. that. Right. So that's why 141 Squadron. If you've ever seen any photographs of their Bristol fighters, you'll see a, a white cockerel painted on the side of the aeroplanes. Right. Uh, so, and even up until they reformed in the Second World War, they were still called the Cock Squadron. Okay. So right. have we got another jet taken off. Hang on a second. That's a Bombardier, yes, they're private charters yep. going off there, there's a Bombardier taking off there and it's whistling off to some lovely warm destination probably. Yeah. Manager directors of a company sitting inside with their secretaries, I should think. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Not that I'm obvious, you can't tell in my voice, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was all over and done with. They came back to Big and Hill related and, and it was wonderful and they got back and the radio work carried on and their fighter work carried on until the end of the war. Uh, then we jump forward to November the 11th, 1918, and the radio operators at South Camp, were, one of them in particular, was getting a bit bored, and he turned into, uh, tuned into his radio set to Paris Radio. Okay. And he was listening to music there. It was early in the morning, and all of a sudden the music stopped. He thought, "Oh, hello, that's funny." And 
a recorded message with uh, Marshall Foch's voice came on and said, ceasefire today at 11 o'clock, ceasefire today at 11 o'clock. And it kept being repeated and repeated. Wow. So he took off his headphones and grabbed the commanding officer who was nearby and said, sir, I think you better listen to this. And sure enough, he said, oh, blimey, yeah. So he picked, the, the commanding officer picked up the telephone, went through to the Appleton in London and said, is this true? It's not a fake message that's being transmitted, is it? And he said, no, you've beaten us to it. Yes, it is the ceasefire today at 11 o'clock. Wow. And everybody went, oh, great. So this commanding officer went back to his telephone telephoned the local vicars in the nearby churches, one at a nearby village called Cuddam, another one called Keston. They subsequently ran out to their churches like this one and started to peel the bells. And from that noise of their bells ringing, other churches in that local area realised there was something on. They ran out to their churches and subsequently the whole of the southeast from the news at Biggin Hill that the ceasefire was going to happen all started ringing their bells so wow. it's a, again a first you know that the yeah. news came to Biggin Hill first and you know it all went straight it snowballed from there onwards you know sort of thing and uh, and it was lots of you know happy times here and the, the uh, all the workmen and, and everybody had their girlfriends all flying in the aeroplanes at the, the airfield here the 141 squadron celebrated but inviting all the local ladies in the town in to see if they'd like to fly in the aeroplanes as well so right. big party yeah yeah one of the guys at uh, 141 squadron had a, a relative who was staying at a london hotel the savoy hotel which you may have heard of and the person staying at the savoy asked if all the members of the squadron the 141 would like to come up and join him for a party to celebrate the end of the war you see and they all jumped at the opportunity got into cars and buses and got up to london very quickly and enjoyed him there for a party well that party went on all day long became very raucous and uh they started smashing plates and jumping on tables and breaking chairs and all sorts of things you know celebrating yeah and the poor manager of the savoy started getting a little bit upset well the, the resident who was there at the hotel said don't worry mr manager they've just celebrating the end of the war let them celebrate and any damage they do, I'll pay for it. And in the meantime, let's have another round of champagne. So he paid for all this, you know, raucous nonsense. Yeah. Well, by the end of the day, they were getting a little bit bored and a little bit, um, I suppose, preoccupied, didn't really want to go home. They decided to leave the Savoy Hotel, and that's a helicopter just going off there and an aircraft. Let's just pause for a moment. Oh, there's an aeroplane going past, going out to take off. Uh, yes, it'll cost a one and nine just taken off there. Um, yeah, so the party carried on outside the hotel. They made their way along uh, to Trafalgar Square, which is the big thing of celebrating the Battle of Waterloo, isn't it? Or whatever it was, I can't remember. None of those ones, one of the Navy things. Anyway, um, on the way to the way to Tra uh, Trafalgar Square, they gathered up bits of wood and newspaper and things like that and decided to uh, show their recognition to Admiral Lord Nelson. Subsequently built a large bonfire on the base of Nelson's column, <laughs> set light to it, and for 20 years Nelson's column had scorch marks up one side where they, as a protest against the Navy, they hated the Navy big time, and they said no, thinking that they were all going to be disbanded, you see. Yeah. And so <laughs> this bonfire was built. Not content with that, they also stole a gun carriage, an anti-aircraft gun from Hyde Park, nearby Hyde Park, and were running up and down the gun, uh, the road, celebrating, you see. Yeah. Got bored with that, let it go, and it went thundering down the road all on its own, and smashed into the base of Nelson's Column. Uh, I went to Nelson's Column four or five years ago, and that damage is still there. It's still a big lump of marble missing off of it. Okay. So, 
So if anybody's around the Nelson's column and you see a big damaged corner, you know why. It's yeah. the boys from Big and Hill did that as a rebellion against the Navy. They didn't want not want to merge with the Navy to make the Royal Air Force. Wow. And so that was their little bit there. Uh, so that was one amusing sort of thing. Um, post-war years, well, um, the development of the radio sets um, took a stage better than that because by the end of the First World Wars, they could see that the you know things were changing, but they also realised the importance of radio communications with future civilian use. Right. And to justify their existence here, they thought they got in touch, put a suggestion forward to set up a um, recording to be made with the House of Commons, the, the Houses of Parliament to impress the MPs how important it was that this work that they were doing was necessity. Yeah. And they did it, and they set up a, a loudspeaker in the House of Commons, and lots of them at first the MPs were dubious as to what was going on. But they actually did a transmission from the Apperfield Court, which was the house that had been requisitioned in the village there, transmitted from there to the House of Commons, got three aeroplanes up or four aeroplanes up, and flew around the House of, the Houses of Parliament, and transmitted from their aircraft down to the MPs, and they were set up with a microphone, and they could make, relay messages back and forth. And the MPs were absolutely overawed by it. They couldn't believe, you know, the, the technology that was going on. Were very, very impressed, and they got a budget infusion after that. Okay. So we increased the size of the camp. The buildings were built up and completed, so they had workshops, accommodation, experimental places for all sorts of things. There was a cinema built there. Also, as a kinetography, I think they, basically a photography thing that they needed to do. They needed to film stuff that they were experimenting with, so yep. that a film unit was set up there. Yeah. A lot of technology was going on there. Also, the wind generator was used, so they didn't have to carry batteries anymore. Okay. Yep. It was a bullet-shaped thing that was invented with a propeller on the front. It was wind-driven. Right. So it was the first of the wind generators was used as an experiment there, and it would provide six or twelve volts for the necessary power because they didn't have a. a power supply coming from the engines like they do with modern technology yeah, yeah, yeah. a separate power supply had to come uh, via a different way and the wind generator was invented there okay. or, or started off there and they, uh, on the left hand wing of the aircraft you'd see a bullet shaped thing and I think there's some of the Bristol fighters that are preserved have got one of these generators there and you see a cable coming out of it from the wing going into the fuselage to supply the radio sets in the back and I think by that time navigation lights had also been started using on the aircraft for night flighting yep. um, so yeah, lots of stuff like that. But they lasted right up until the South Camp area. Um, unfortunately, they had to be wound up in 1923 because the global recession was going on and the country couldn't afford four different establishments doing secret work, or not so much experimental work more than anything else. Yeah. And the government said, look, we can't afford, or the Treasury said, we can't afford these four places all to exist. Let's amalgamate them all by moving all the experimental work from whatever they're doing to the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough in Hampshire, right. which stayed on to be the world-renowned Royal Aircraft Establishment with yep. all sorts of experiments going on there on aircraft. So unfortunately had to wind up what became known as the IDE, which was the Instrument Development Establishment. Prior to that it was known as WE, or the Wireless Experimental Establishment, and it changed its name to IDE. And that work had to stop, so they took all the brains out of the camp that were over there 
and moved them down to Farnborough and it meant this lovely brand new camp that was all set near with lovely new buildings even accommodation block for ladies because then uh, the ladies were required to seamstresses to make bespoke make helmets oh, right. uh, leather seamstresses um, they would make these leather helmets for the observers yep. uh, with a fur lining to them because when they were flying along the observers were finding the headsets were really cold right. on their heads because the cold air and the metal headphones you see and so the ladies had to uh, manufacture these, these helmets uh, for them to incorporate the headphones and also to have a clip on the helmet for the microphone. Yep. So they all had to be redispersed and this lovely whole camp was dormant. They then gave the camp to the army and said, well, you can have it now to use as your uh, anti-aircraft training place because you hadn't got a particular squadron of guys doing anti-aircraft at that time so they formed the anti-aircraft squadron and the navy had given them some guns back that time that actually fired straight up into the air so it was a good excuse to start the squadron up yeah or battalion or whatever you call the army yeah i think um another jack citation going off there yeah so um it was given over to the army for the anti-aircraft gun there was a hangar built there, and they put an old uh, First World War bomber in there, which used to drone round, flying round with a half a mile of cable behind it and a sleeve, and it would fly around at night time, and the anti-aircraft guns would open up and fire at it and try to shoot the sleeve. Also, a, a battalion of searchlights were there, so it was good practice for them, you know, as a defence of future defence if it should be needed. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't too good for the locals because the local people that in the village here were complaining that the pom-pom guns would open up at two o'clock in the morning and then frighten all their chickens that would lay premature eggs and stuff and right. bits of hot metal were coming down into the village. <laughs> I was going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't, wasn't very popular. And uh, yeah, it was that and the searchlights. Also at the same time, the sound locator squadron was, was put there. Uh, around the coast of Kent, uh, great big, huge, 100-foot concrete dishes are erected there yeah. for the purpose of listening for oncoming enemy aeroplanes should they come across the channel. Okay. Uh, the idea was that this big dish had a seat inside it um, where the man sat with a stethoscope on. You could move the dish around a little bit and tilt it slightly, and he would tell the direction of the sound where the aircraft were coming. Yeah. And they were good for 15, 20 miles uh, away, but was all right. He could say, yes, there's an aeroplane coming, but the time he's picked up the telephone, the aeroplane, which was 10 miles away, is now right above him. Yes. So that time lapse, if you like, wasn't adequate, uh, but they worked and they were perfected here at Biggin Hill. They erected a large concrete dish on the corner of the airfield here with for the sound locating group of people to try and use. Okay. Also, a contraption was invented, like a framework, with all I can describe as six witches' hats on it. They look like the conical-shaped cones. Yep. Again, with an engineer sitting there with a stethoscope on, and he would move the contraption round, tilt it, lift it up and down, until he heard the perfect cone of sound, and he would shout out, expose, and there would be a rod connected to this contraption, which was connected to a searchlight, and the beam of light would be opened up, and shone in the sky, and nine times out of ten, it would nearly always point at an aeroplane that was in the sky. Wow. Okay. So the sound locator group were here for ten years, uh, between the 20s and 30s, until they realised they deemed it sort of obsolete, really. Yeah. Uh, it was never really any good in the first place, but they thought they'd go through the motions of doing it. Yeah. In the meantime, over in North Camp here, the fighter squadron, uh, several squadrons replaced uh, one for one squadron in the early 
in the early 1920s were sent to Northern Ireland to sort out the problems out there, to help out with the problems that had just started off. Yeah. I think the next one was 56 Squadron that came here with Sopwith Snipes. And they, you know, it stayed an RAF camp, a North Camp, whereas the Army were based on, on South Camp. So yeah. we had the two camps and never the Twainsville meet, as they say. Yeah. Um, there was inter-rivalry sports events that they did. You know, they'd have a sports day where the two camps challenged each other to different events. Yep. Um, lots of things happened. Um, it, it was quite amusing. There's one amusing story, if you'd like me to tell it to you. Sure. Which happened uh, while 141 was still here, and they were bored, and they were getting a bit, you know, agitated. They would watch the guys at the experimental place go into the village into a little cafe a uh, very quaint little village cafe that outside had a, what, a large four foot nearly five foot wooden teapot outside and it was painted teas and refreshments on it on the side of this teapot you see and uh, they they were quite envious because this they weren't allowed to actually go there in oh, the village okay. and uh, but anyway one night they sneaked out in a, in a van stole the teapot from outside of the tea shop and kept it as a trophy and the really reason why they did this was the fact that when they engineers or the observers were testing these radio sets uh, when they did it in the days prior to proper aerials being applied to aircraft they would have to trail a 30-foot cable underneath the aeroplane yes. it would wound out underneath then they could carry out the transmissions well often the rookie observers that were flying around would forget to retract the cable right and as they're coming into land the cable would either snag on a tree or a chimney pot or something like that rip the cable out the bottom of the airplane and one for one squadron boys over this side of the camp thought it was hilarious watching these cables come you know out of the back of the airplane <laughs> yep. and so with the teapot they uh, one very early morning they tied a lump of rope to it took off with one of the bristol fighters flew round the village and round the airfield low down with a teapot suspended underneath the aeroplane as if to say ha ha you know we've got your teapot and then of course the, the South Camp boys came sleepily out of their house you know their tents rather and <laughs> saw this Bristol fighter flying around with a teapot hanging out underneath it <laughs> so for a little while the trophy kept going between the two camps and you know it was uh, quite a treasured thing then right, until right. the poor man in the village decided he wanted his teapot back again <laughs> and he sent the local policeman out on his bicycle to come and come and tre retrieve it you see and uh, and to pacify the owner of the tea shop they all went to the town into the village and uh, paid way over the top prices for a cup of tea just to cheer him up and give him back his teapot but right. <laughs> about a month later the teapot disappeared again you know so <laughs> <laughs> But the, the, the funny thing was, actually, as a child uh, myself, in the 1960s, uh, I went to a school which was right next to where this tea shop used to be. Yeah. And they had a wooden fence, a perimeter fence around it. And one day I looked through the hole in the wooden fence, and to my surprise, I saw that red painted teapot in the bedraggled grounds of the tea shop. It was all overgrown with weeds and things. Okay. And I didn't understand that, if I wish I had the significance of that teapot yeah yeah, yeah. and the, the tea shop was actually being in the throes of in the late 60s early 70s as being demolished and a housing estate put there right, right. and it was such a shame that i didn't have the hindsight to go in there and retrieve the teapot you know because yeah. for the museum now it would have been a real prize it you would know? have been yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's one sort of a, another anecdote that uh, happened here at Bingham hill um jump forward a decade or two uh, in 1930 uh, 1937 um, the airport was quite busy with the fighters. The, the, the 
army boys were still here then doing their stuff. Uh, aircraft that were landing at uh, Croydon Airport, um, which was our main London airport there, would often have to be diverted because Croydon, as it was, was quite a big industrial town then, and it was often shrouded in fog and, and haze, and yeah. pilots were finding it difficult to land at the airport because it was in a dip. Right. right. It was sort of a low land. And uh, they would sort of radio a mayday saying, look, we've got to land because we're getting short of petrol. Where can we go? So the, the controllers at, at uh, Croydon would either divert them to Kenley Airport, which is 10 miles to the west of Biggin Hill here, or actually to Biggin Hill, because right. it was 700 feet above sea level here and out of the clouds. Yes. Yeah. And they could find it quite easily. And so often a, a bit... Um, where we're sitting right now is on the base of a huge hangar that was built in the post-war years, about 1919. And it was called a triple bay hangar. It was a wooden hangar. It looked like a big cathedral with three big domes on the top of it. Oh, another jet going off. Bombardier, I think that one is. I'm not sure what that one was, but... Uh, Another light aircraft jet going off there. Busy, uh, busy, yeah, busy place, it? it is. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, this this base where we're sitting on now is, is was the base of the big hangar here. Okay, and uh, so the, the the pilots could find it quite easily because I think the doors on the outside of the, the hangar were painted bright fluorescent orange. Oh, right. for the benefit of the RAF pilots as yeah, well. Yeah. You see. So the the airliners would land here, and at any one time there would be seven or eight airliners out on the ramp in front of the hangar there and dis. Georgian, the, the passengers and pilots and people. Okay. And there's a lovely brand new, and we can see it through as we're sitting here across the road from the airfield here, yep. an officer's mess. So when the planes landed, the officers were very accommodating to the passengers and said, come across to the mess and wait in there and have some sherries with us or drinks or cakes or whatever until your bus arrives from Croydon Airport to come and to collect you, which they did do quite often. And, you know, they were very grateful. There was a double-edged sword to it, if you like, because when the Imperial Airways flight, which was a predecessor to British Airways, used to land here, um, there would often be um, pilot, co-pilot, wireless operator and the passengers. And the passengers in these particular flights were young ladies who were due to go to Paris to um, a modelling thing there. They they were modelling studios. And the pilots used to here used to think, oh great, you know, we'll accommodate them over there, and you know, of course, they were chatting them all up as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until the buses arrived, used to pick them up. Uh, one of the airlines that would land here and make it slightest excuse was a brand new airline in the late thirties called Deutsche Lufthansa. Okay. Now, with all the others, the pilot, co-pilot, wireless operator, and the passengers, the Deutsche Lufthansa one would land here. It's usually a, a Ju fifty two passenger plane, a converted bomber, you know. Yes. But it would have a load of extra pilots instead of passengers in the back. And they'd get out of the aeroplane and they'd be like owls looking around with big eyes. Right, yep. Making a note of what the camp was doing and everything else. And they'd invite them across and have a laugh with the, the German pilots and say, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're talking about how we beat you in the First World War sort of thing, you know. Yeah. All prestigious stuff. But foolishly, next door to the officer's mess, and I'm pointing with my hand to the left here, was a brand new building, and outside the building, it's head operations room. Ah, okay. Oh, another jet. Slightly bit, oh, it's a big 6500, that one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Goldstream. Very nice aeroplane taking off. Looks like a, a NetJex one from Portugal. Okay. 
Yeah, so flying in and out of here with uh, charter flights here. Anyway, this operations room that was over there, and they were quite curious as to what it did, and he, you know, managed to weedle out the information in the RAF pilots. I told them what it was, and uh, very foolishly, of course. Yes. Um, but uh, this this thing in 1937. Um, the 32 Squadron was based here with Gloucester Gauntlet aircraft, okay. and the Gauntlets had just been fitted with brand new radio sets, high frequency radio sets, and they were quite perplexed when a gentleman turned up at the main gates just around the corner from where I'm sitting and introduced himself as being Professor Tizard and would like to speak to the commanding officer of the camp. Yep. And they were a bit intrigued as to why this man had turned up. Commanding officer said, what can I do to help you? Um, intrigued, he said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I know 32 Squadron have got the new ra uh, higher frequency radio sets fitted and the commanding officer said, oh, hang on a minute, how do you know that? And he said, well, I know a lot of things about this camp. I need their help with an experiment that I'm currently carrying out. And he said, I'm only going to be here for six weeks with three other professors, and we're going to carry out this defence uh, exercise, if you like. And they went, oh, okay. I also know that you've got a, a new office over there, which is marked as the operations room, and you're trying to control the aircraft. He said, I know that you've got young ladies and a blackboard in there with chalk and a map of England on it. And they're all falling over each other with this chalk and bits of string. They said, well, yeah, we are actually. How do you know all this? He said, well, I've heard about it. And anyway, commanding officer of the camp gave him permission to carry out his experiments. You know, as he said, it was only going to be six weeks. Yeah. That six weeks turned into eight months. And what he did, he started off using 32 Squadron. He'd asked them to fly down to the channel at 10,000 feet. And when they got down there... He would say, right, now look out to your right-hand side and down below you at 6,000 feet is a squadron of incoming bombers. And they are pretending to London, uh, bomb London. They are RF bombers, you know. Fly down and pretend to intercept them, shoot them down, you know, and then come back and tell me how you got on. We'll give you directions on the radio. So they did that and they thought that was great fun, you know. Oh, yeah, flew back, really excited. And the pilots arrived back at Biggin Hill again to the professor and said, great, you know, how's that work? And he said, well, at the moment, I can't tell you, but can you carry on doing it, you know, yeah. next couple of days? Well, as I said, that, that um, six weeks ended up being eight months here. And by the end of the eight months, the boys are getting a bit fed up and keep doing it, you know. And in the end, rather than shooting down the bombers and it was costing too much money, they would actually fly around the back and sneak around the back of the two o'clock KLM flight. And over the top of the channel, they'd radio back saying, right, we just shot down KLM, you know. Yeah. And, uh, oh, hang on a sec. That sounds military. It's like a Puma. Same engine noise it was S7. It's below the building there, we can't see it. Oh, that's a shame. But, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. Um, so they, they pretend to shoot down these civil airliners that are going into Croydon Airport. Right. And come back, and uh, it was all being plotted and recorded in the operations room. Well, Tizard got rid of all that. And he had some laminated maps installed in there, slightly raised up. He also had, with telecommunications, the controllers mounted in a higher platform, looking down at the maps with their telephones, which he had subsequently connected to major bases at, at Bentley Priory in London and also Uxbridge. Yeah. 
and they were like control rooms. And he had perfected a network of controls. He other he got a, uh, other commanding officers to come in from other um, stations to come to Biggin Hill and say, look, this is how this is going to work. Yeah. We are predicting, along with um, Lord Dowding, who was interested in the defence of England at that time as well, yeah. Dowding and Tizard both worked together, got all the people to come to Biggin Hill to look at the, the way they'd lay out everything, and it was working. He'd also installed, and if you watch a film called Angels 1-5, there's a dreadful uh, British film, um, very cheesy, very sort of with Jack Hawkins in it. Yeah. Briefly, you see a glass screen, which the screen went from the floor to the ceiling with the, it was frosted glass, yeah. and it had a, a map of England etched upon it with the channel and the coast of Europe there. And he got girls to stand behind the screen and a light shone through it, and they would apply rubber stickers to the map. They had telephones uh, connected to Uxbridge, and they would get information as to where our aeroplanes were by applying a rubber sticker on the map and move it as they knew that it was moving across the country as they were flying along. Okay. And I'm going like this with my hand. <laughs> yeah. uh, he would move, the, the girls would move the rubber sticker fr- across the map um, indicating our aeroplanes and also the enemy aeroplanes coming across from Europe and the controllers could then guide the uh, our aircraft into the interception of the enemy aeroplanes coming and it was all perfected here at Biggin Hill wow that's fantastic so yeah another first for Biggin Hill um, so yeah that control room was all done and of course towards the end of the eight months the boys become suspicious and they sort of had a rough idea what the work was going on because they'd seen these great big masts being erected all around the, the coast of England, and that turned out to be what was called Chain Home, which was the Chain Home radar. Right. And Tizard had been working in conjunction with a, uh, another guy, an expert, um, electronic engineer, called Robert Watson Watt, yeah. who had been perfecting radar. In the early days of 1937, they only had two stations. One was at Bordsey in East Anglia, and the other one was at Swanage down at the coast in Dorset. Okay. And uh, so the two stations were working radar equipment as you know the expert and our boys here at Biggin Hill were helping out with the development of radar okay wow so that was that was what happened there amazing yeah amazing yeah yeah um obviously coming up to the second world war there were squadrons here there were several RAF squadrons the army still stayed at the south camp there right through the second world war and they carried on training anti-aircraft school there um the battle of Britain started here at Biggin Hill um lots of things happened um, we had two runways installed here um, because it was grass right up until January 1940 yep. and runways also were applied at Kenley Airfield there and the propaganda man that was always on the radio it was Lord Hawhaw, the German propaganda yep. man yep. and they used to have a, a Junkers Ju-86 bomber that was pressurised and it could and diesel engines and it could fly up to 45,000 feet and it would fly over England taking lots of photographs and Haw Haw was getting loads of information from these photographs and one day he, he perked up in January 1940 and said ah oh, we see that Kenley and Biggin Hill have got new runways and they went oh, and all the boys on the ground went oh blimey so they got the camouflage guys out and they painted um, with tarmac a river across the airfield to right. try and disguise the runways and they did the same at Kenley and a, short, a few days later, the Haw Haw got back on the radio again and said, we see that you have tried to disguise your runways. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, that didn't work very well, but, you know, the runway stayed. And uh, But anyway, um, what happened was, Biggin Hill was bombed on the, I think, early August 
1940. Uh, not too much damage. There was a couple of vehicles and a couple of aeroplanes were damaged, I think, on the far side of the, on the to the south of the airfield here. Yeah. But the big raid came on the 30th of August, which was a Sunday and six o'clock in the evening. The big hangar that was here and the other two that were on this northern side of the airport here. Uh, engineers were working on some of the aeroplanes, but Wing Commander Grice, who was the commanding officer of the whole airfield, insisted that the air... No way. <laughs> We're right near the main road here, so that's an ambulance going past. Ah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, he ordered the aircraft to be dispersed around the airfield and not in the hangars. He learnt and heard about the history of what happened in Holland and France, yep. aircraft being totally annihilated. So he had them all ordered and hidden around the woods at the back of the airfield there. And so, anyway, this big raid that came in, there was nine aircraft came in from the southeast. Uh, I think there were JU-88s came flying up at treetop height screaming across from the southeast across to the north there and as they came across they destroyed the hangar that was they bombed the hangar at the south camp there was the big hangar the wooden hangar yeah the one that's at the corner of the airfield here and the large triple bay hangar where we're sitting on the base of um lots of casualties lots of damage and uh unfortunately one of the bombs missed the hangar and hit an air raid shelter and that Everybody had panicked and run into the same shelter instead of dispersing themselves. Right. And I think there was about 34 people killed in that shelter that was hit by the bomb. The bomb exploded in the entrance and there was somebody just trying to get into the entrance. Oh, no. They were immediately killed and the, the, the shelter collapsed on top of the people. Uh, four foot of concrete and it all you know it took three days to get all the bodies out. Right. Um, there was also a young girl who was a naffy. Uh, wagon and Affy being the, the catering people, they had a, a truck outside the hangar here. She'd got out the truck and gone to the main building where the supply room was to get some more cigarettes for the airmen. And she was walking back along the road along the edge of the hangar there. And as the, one of the aircraft went past, he was strafing anything that moved and he saw this lady walking along. And when they found Trixie, she had 19 bullets in her. Wow. So yeah, it was you know it was a very sad day because he was a very respected lady yeah. who supplied all the teas and coffees to everybody. And um, Wing Commander Grice insisted that when they buried the airmen that were killed in the shelter, she was buried with them and recognised, even though she was a civilian volunteer. Wow. Uh, you know they wanted to recognise her. Gosh. Yes. So yeah. Uh, various squadrons were came here in, in 1941. The different nationalities started to come in. The Americans came here in late 41, early 42. Uh, an Eagle Squadron, which was RAF, but they were, you know, specifically American pilots and people. They were based here for a short time. They helped out with Operation Jubilee, which was the invasion of uh, Dieppe. Yes. The terrible, horrible thing that went horribly wrong was 2,000 American, uh, sorry, 2,000 Canadian troops were killed and uh, it, it just shouldn't really have done without proper research, you know. Yeah. Well, that's another story for another day, so somebody else can tell that. But, yeah. but anyway, uh, they were dispersed here. Um, one of their pilots was, uh, I think, squadron leader at the time, Blakesley. He went on to become a famous American pilot after the Second World War with the Korean War, uh, flying jets. But while Blakesley was here, he was quite a renowned pilot, and he had, uh, you know, it was not one for regulations. He was asked to take over the ruling of the squadron that was here, 133. And uh, because the squadron 
leader had been sent back to America to promote war bonds because America had been just come into the war by that time. Yep. And while he was celebrating, you know, or trying to have a party down at Lim Airfield, which was the other shadow airfield for the Biganil, he was a bit indiscreet with young ladies visiting his room and was subsequently caught with two ladies climbing out the window one night by the commanding officer of the camp there, put on a charge and and um, busted back down to pilot officer again. So, <laughs> so it all went horribly wrong for him and he was really reprimanded. He was very, very nearly court-martialed actually. Right, right. Uh, so it was quite a serious offence in those days. Yeah. And so yeah, that was, that was him. And the commanding officer had to then come back, the real one from America to take over again and reprimanded him again and said, what the blooming hell do you think you're doing, silly man? Yeah. But anyway, he was all forgiven and promoted back up again. And uh, right. so he, he carried on. Um, various other, nationality squadrons were here I'm going to jump forward a couple of years because I'm not that coerced with what actually happened here several things did happen um, to 1943 when it was at a time when we had lovely spitfires and we were taking the, the war over to Europe the, the enemy had stopped bombing London by that time yep. and we were going over there looking for punch-ups and on what they used to call I think it was rhubarbs yep. and, and rodeos and, and various other code words for, yep. for going across to Europe Ramrods was one, that's yep. right, thank you. And they do those rhubarbs and things. And eventually, we were shooting down enemy aeroplanes quite well. And a tally was starting to uh, form on how many aeroplanes we'd got down to, you know, 300, 500. And eventually, the big day came when we actually managed to get to 1,000 aeroplanes. Right. And there was a big prize money offered to the first pilot who could get the 1,000th kill. And it happened, and I think it was, Margaret said it was July 43, I think, when she was a lovely lady. Uh, she told me that it was 43. And the day came, obviously, they, they were both pilots were recognised as shooting down the same aeroplane, I think. And they go through back very jubilant. One of them was a French guy called René Mouchot with the French Alice squadron that was here then. Yep. And René was a, a Canadian pilot. Uh, sorry, uh, Jack Charles was the Canadian pilot here. Yep. Uh, he was credited as well. So they had a big celebration, and there's a Spitfire going off. One of five aeroplanes where you can actually hire a ride in the back of the Spitfire. It's a two-seat Spitfire that flies off, and for £2,700 you can go for a ride in it uh, for 20 minutes. And so, yeah, uh, that's one of them going off with a passenger that's mostly probably delighted in that, which is great. Yep. It's nice to, to actually work at the museum and to hear that familiar fight of the Spitfires. Sometimes more than one aircraft will take off and there's a formation of anything up to three Spitfires flying at any one time. So it's really lovely when you get that. Yes. He will now join up with the smaller aeroplane that just took off just now. And they do a photographic thing where they, um, the Spitfire formates on the camera ship and yep. uh, they take air-to-air -air pictures. Wow, fantastic. So, yeah, that really, unfortunately, is all my knowledge. My, my later knowledge of the Second World War, I'm not so quite so clo clued up on. So uh, that's well, really that, the end of my tale there. If you've got any questions for me, don't yeah. I can... Well, um, that, that mid to late uh, 1943 period is when the New Zealand squadron got here. But I think they got here just after uh, that thousand... They weren't one of the squadrons it here. It could well be. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't clarify it. But no. I know they were here. Yeah. And it could well be the situation that was correct. Um, I also know that in 1944, in June 1944, flying completely stopped and the squadrons were moved out. Can you think why? Well, what happened in June? Apart, oh, the, uh, from, apart uh, from the, 
the V1s. The, V1s, well yes. done, yeah, yeah, thank you. That's brilliant. Because um, I asked that to people when they visit the museum, and they said, well, I don't know, you know. Yeah. But it was the um, start of the V1s, and the enemy were launching as many as two or 300 a day and night. Yes. Yeah. And so they had anything up to 300 barrage balloons situated at oh, all the adjacent air right. um, fields and the field itself was filled up with barrage balloons yeah. and they would launch them up into the air at different heights like a giant size fishing net yeah. to try and stop the V1s from coming across here that were aimed at London. Yeah. So that made it, it dangerous was, for the aircraft here to be flying around? Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's it. There was that also. But they, they, they were needed down on the coast because they could in, intercept them yeah. as they were coming across the channel. Yeah. yeah. So was the, the nearest one to here, which was on the coast, and they would fly up. The squadrons were based there and try and catch them because they were quite fast, well over 400 miles an hour. Right. And the early Spitfires we had in those days were, you know, a push. They could get 400 out of them yeah. if they got enough height and dived Dive, yeah. at them. And in fact, they think they started calling the, for code word purposes, they, the V1s were called divers. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that's why they had to be called divers because our fighters had to dive down until we got the more powerful Mark 9s yeah. to attack them with and the Typhoons as well, the yeah. Hawker Typhoons. Typhoons and Tempests. Tempests, yeah. Um, they would shoot, and the early Meteors as well, the Meteor Jets were yeah. starting to catch them. Yeah. Um, but they, uh, excuse the children, we've got a party of children visiting the museum here today, which is lovely to see. They're all... Uh, what are they, nine years, nine years old, most of those, yeah, nine yeah, or ten yeah. years old, so just the last year at primary school. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, the V1s were coming across. The the only time the V1 or the barrage balloons were successful here was one that was towards the southeast in a field, probably about three or four miles away from here, that was actually in the air. The V1 hit the cable that was holding the barrage balloon and unfortunately veered off and went to the right and came down into a little village where there was an orphanage and it came down in the grounds of the orphanage and 30 children were killed oh, so it was quite sad you know and after that they sort of went oh you know we're going to have to be careful of this and uh, they did a good job of deterring the things uh, we have a map inside the museum here which actually shows the impact points of around the southeast area of where bombs landed and were um, detonated and also the crash sites of the V1s and eventually when they started using V2s as well. So for anybody visiting the museum you can see this lovely big map on the wall of the crash sites and a big aerial picture of the map of the Biggin Hill as well. Lots of other displays are in there, we've got uh, pieces of aircraft in there, uh, there's a Merlin engine in there and a Daimler-Benz engine in there for a crashed Mission Smith 109. Yep. Um, pilots uniforms there's one of the uniforms here from one of the pilots that were flying here in the 1930s when he was helping out with the early experiments with radar and his family donated his uniform okay. to us yeah. uh, another display which is um, uh, dedicated to a radio engineer um, whose grandson still comes here and is still alive and he did a lot of work with the radios um, and his name's slipped my mind at the moment, but I'll come back to you in a moment. Yep. Uh, his dedicated area with the radio set that we have got in there, that was an early radio set. Um, he went on, he survived the First World War and went to work at Croydon Airport directing another Spitfire taking off. <laughs> Can't beat it. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Such a distinctive noise. It's yeah. so good to be here with that taking off. Um, yeah, Mockford, that's his name, Mockford, it suddenly came to me. Yep. Uh, Sid, Sid Mockford came here 
uh, learned all about radio sets and actually became an instructor uh, teaching um, some of the engineers or the, uh, the observers how to use radio sets and he went from Biggin Hill when the war um, the cessation of, of war yeah. to Croydon Airport to help radio operators over there with the civilian airliners that were coming in right okay okay and he actually devised a test for radio um, engineers or uh, wireless transmitting engineers who were doing broadcasts how to speak and how to you know okay. do things properly yeah, and he yeah. laid out the test and it was officially recognized by the ARB which was the air registration board who was then took over uh, civilian use of aeroplanes after the First World War and uh, it was lots of regulations all were laid out for the flying of civilian airports and he helped out with that yeah. okay. and he stayed at Croydon Airport right up until its demise I think in the 50s right. so yeah okay yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's about it for me yeah all right well could you tell me when did the museum get oh I'm sorry yeah we forgot yeah. about that don't yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I do apologize yeah oh, the museum was uh it really started off back in 2004. Lots of local people thought it's about time we had one, including my mother, my own mother. Yeah. Um, petitioned with um, the local councillors, and the councillors were very forthcoming. They said, yes. Uh, the council um, got together got together with some architects, some plans were laid out initially, and then unfortunately it came to the end of their office time, and the councillors changed. Ah, right. And all the plans that we did have for a lovely two-story building that we're going to be building here went straight out the window there was even an entrepreneur locally that fund, funded some architects to design you know do some lovely things and that went by the bayside um, but the new councillors took over and we now have this new fantastic building here now which is not as good as the original plans but it's good and uh, it, it was erected and finished in february 2019 so just yeah. 2018 rather bigger pardon yeah uh, two years before Covid, um, we just got going, doing really well and then Covid came along and the, the museum suffers a little bit with Covid, having to close obviously, uh, we had to uh, click our heels for a little while but we've opened again and we've also had the museum refurbished back in January this year uh, for much better displays inside, much more relevant to what happened at Biggin Hill, there's a lot more uh, things whereas before it was okay but it wasn't as good as it should have been there was a lot more personal things before then but we've done away with the personal things and more relevant things to when the visitors come um, applicable to a more of a better understanding of what went on here at Biggin Hill yes. yeah. from radio exhibits to aircraft parts and bits and pieces the intermore years, the sound locators and all the things I've spoken about are yeah. all in there oh fantastic I mean, There's even actually a, a blitzed area in the back there for a household that the children could go in. There's an Anderson shelter oh, yes. in there, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you can have a look round in there. Yeah, so, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've learned a hell of a lot about Biggin Hill just in this last hour talking to you because Good. I only Good. really know it from the Good. World War Two yeah, yeah, era, course, and, yeah. and that's yeah, no, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Really yeah. fantastic. Thank yes. you very much, Dave. That's right. My and, pleasure, Dave. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Yeah, yeah. I recommend to anyone who's going to come here, um, see if you can find a day when Dave Cole is the the guy's yeah, going to yeah, take you around yeah. if, you know bring up the uh, museum prior to your visit mm. and uh, I'll make sure I'm here because I live local in the in the village and I can come down and escort anybody a party of people and, and tell him the anecdotes that I've just related to you yeah, so yeah. yeah and no doubt a lot more yeah oh, yeah. yeah exactly yeah, my aviation knowledge is not just big and hill either so yeah, yeah excellent thanks Dave my pleasure following that fantastic chat with Dave Cole I moved indoors to St George's RAF Chapel which is a memorial chapel right next to the museum. And I met with Margaret Wilmot, who's the secretary of the Society of the Friends of St George's RAF Chapel. 
Well, I'll give you the name that I'm known by because I'm known as Margaret Wilmot. Um, I live in Biggin Hill and I've been the verger here now for eight years. And prior to that, I was a member of the congregation for some time. And I'm also the secretary of a group called the Friends of St. George's REF Chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been in place 33 years now and put in place by the REF itself before they left. They didn't know what was going to happen to their beloved chapel. So they put together a group of interested people, and their role was to maintain it as a place of active worship, that was the most important, to care for the internal fabric of the building, to care for the gate guardians out at the front, and to look after the memorial garden outside. And that's what we've been doing for 33 years. And we're still here. (laughs) Despite all the odds, we are here. (laughs) So this is um, the second chapel to be built. Um, The first chapel came into being in um, 1943 on the original enclave. Um, There would have already been a chapel church, or a a basis church here, Um, but in May the 15th, 1943, two airmen flying from Biggin Hill claimed the 1,000th kill of an enemy aircraft. It's very prestigious for the base. They celebrated greatly. Um, But when they came back, they also decided they would like to remember and honour those who'd lost their lives in the previous three years. It was also at that time realised how important the Battle of Britain had been to the way in which the war was going. Um, And so they decided to have their own memorial chapel. They pushed together three wooden huts, and that formed the chapel. Um, One of the air pilots who was part of the reason for it being founded. René Mouchot um, actually lost his life in August of uh, 43. And the chapel, as I said, he was part of the instigation to, to the original chapel. The original chapel was dedicated in September 1943. Okay. It was very plain. Um, it had two wooden boards either side of a plain altar. It had squadron badges across the top. And on either side, it had flags from the Allied and Commonwealth countries who had airmen flying not just from Biggin Hill, but from the Biggin Hill Sector C and some of the satellite stations that made up Group 11, of which Biggin Hill was the lead station. Um, They stretched from here down to the coastline, uh, forming a chain of defence for London, protecting London from incoming enemy aircraft. So the chapel was born. Um, I said very plain. As time went on, uh, deaths came in, Names were added until by the end of the war, there were three boards either side full of names. The chapel itself um, had plain windows, it had a very small organ, um, it had a small pulpit, um, and it was full of chairs. The back room of the three huts was always used as a social gathering room. Um, It had the Padre's desk in, and the men would come and have probably a little bit of respite there. There were games to play, easy chairs, a wind-up gramophone from Decker, um, well, its original position was right right on the edge of the enclave, so it was probably one of the quietest places to be. Yep. Churchill used to call in on his way through to Chartwell, okay. very much approved of the memorial to those brave souls. And all went swimmingly, all went really well. Um, at the, 1945, when um, the war had finished, uh, because of its position of where it was on the edge of the enclave, it was able to be opened to the villagers to be able to go to service, yep. which they did, uh, well attended, 
And then um, Christmas time, 1946, or round about then, it had a chimney fire. Okay. And it was totally destroyed. Oh. Everything in it was lost. Gosh. Churchill came through with the Padre of a time, Padre King. He voiced, one of the things he said was that as a nation, we have very poor memories and there must and should be a permanent memorial to the brave souls. It presented a little bit of a problem, uh, being a permanent one. They had to get permission. It took them three years to get through the red tape, but eventually um, architects were employed to uh, design a chapel that was basically the same size and shape as the original. Okay. And it was as austere as the original. It had plain windows. It, again, was filled with chairs. Again, the back part section was a social gathering room um, and the main body of the chapel was very similar to the way it was with plain windows but this time the boards that were put up because there were no more deaths to be added yeah. it was decided that for ease of reading they would group all the names under squadrons Okay. so the squadron badges came down and a timeline of the battles that were fought uh, were put along the top yeah and you can see from Dunkirk right the way through to the end of the war. Again, well attended by the villagers. When the chapel was built, this one, in 1951, there would have always been a padre while the RAF were active here, but a chaplain was appointed, whoever was the vicar of St Mark's Church in Biggin Hill, became a chaplain here. Um, the very first chaplain here was the Reverend Vivian Simmons. He had very strong views about what a church should look like. Yeah. Uh, the first thing was there was no baptismal font. So he designed the font that is here now. Um, and within it, um, there is the RAF Biggin Hill's own symbol, which is the sword, showing it's a fighter station, pointing to the sky, and a ring, a chain, uh, joined in a circle uh, to show that uh, this was the chain of protection, and Biggin Hill was cast as the strongest link in that chain. Okay. Over time, um, more things happened within the chapel. Um, he also decided that a chapel was no chapel without stained glass windows. Right. So um, he's also said he wanted angels. Well, these are very long, tall, slim windows, as you can see. Yes. And so the only ones really that could be used were the six-winged seraphim. Um, a very famous stained glass artist at the time, Hugh Easton, was employed. He designed the Battle of Britain window in Westminster Abbey. Okay. Um, he designed these. They're called a cloud of witnesses, and they bear witness to the spirit of fighter pilots. Right. Um, they, each of them have their own special emblem within them, and all of them have been donated, either by a group or by a family, for individual reasons. Okay, yeah, yeah. The back two... Um, are from the two factories that made the Hurricane and the Spitfire. The next two refer to Group 11. So you have, uh, well, Fighter Command. You have a Fighter Command own emblem, and then you have Group 11's Fighter Command emblem. After that, there are seven. This is one of the few things in the chapel that relates just to Biggin Hill and the Battle of Britain. The other seven, um, along the sides here, um, hold the badges of squadrons that flew just from Biggin Hill during the Battle of Britain. Okay, yep. And the very last one at the top in the sanctuary is RAF Biggin Hill's own emblem. Right. I said over time, gifts came in. Um, every single one of our allied countries, except for two, have got their own personal tributes here to their airmen. Um, 
the, uh, all the other things that have come in over time have been donated either, again, by individuals or by families or by groups or by the RAF itself okay. while it was still here. Yeah. Um, when it left, it finished off several little bits just to make sure the chapel was absolutely perfect for use. Yeah. It has continued to be used ever since that day that it was built. Um, it's been threatened with closure three times oh, right. and has risen above that three times. Um, and it now, as I said, is open in two different ways. One, as a visitor's memorial, um, which is linked through to the museum, and the other is as a very active place of worship. Right, okay. So That, there's that a... gives you the basic, if you like, bottom line of things, yeah. yeah. So there's a local congregation who are there? There is a local there. congregation. Um, they're made up of, it's a very small one now, they're made up of uh, people like me, who is a villager, uh, from Biggin Hill, um, those who have served here in the RF just before it closed, yep. and those who have family or connections to either the chapel or to um, the RAF itself. There's a little core group of 13, and then we have others who live further afield, and they already go to their own local churches, so they donate one Sunday a month to come here. Okay. So we can get up to 25 at one time, the lowest number we've ever had in is 12. Okay. But our big services, we are talking about several hundred. Right, right, right. And so I guess you'd have um, RAF-connected services like Battle of Britain Day services? We have, a, we have always inherited... Well, originally here, two big services were held a year, which was Battle of Britain Sunday and Remembrance Sunday. Yeah. Um, while since it's been much more active, once the RAF had left then, it went to a period of time where it was looked after by the MOD, but it had nobody in place here apart from a chapel warden. So although the services continued those two and a weekly service, there was no other activity into the chapel. Uh, ten years ago now, a particular group of people who were actually put together um, by inaugurated two years before the RAF left called the Friends of the Chapel, yeah. um, were put in place to actually do exactly that, to run the services and to care for the fabric of the building. Okay. We still do that. The museum just care for the shell. So we have become much more active, and we now have four very big services a year inside. We have four big services outside, mm -hmm. and then we have many other smaller services. And I said we still continue to bury ashes. I have a baptism two weeks' time. Yeah. I uh, have a burial a week's time, oh. and we are also laying up the RAF regiment standard on that day okay. into here. Um, so, as I said, very, very active. Uh, you mentioned earlier to me that uh, one of the two countries that doesn't have a... Is New Zealand. Is New Zealand. Yes. So tell me, what do we need to do? Well, um, I'd, I had um, put out some feelers towards uh, one of the ladies who comes here, her daughter is now living in New Zealand, and I asked her to follow up for me, so we'll see what comes of that. Yeah. You've already heard the two of them are the Free French yeah. and New Zealand. If I tell you what's come in from the others, it'll give you an idea yeah. of the kind of things. Yeah. So the um, altar furniture, the cross and the two candlesticks, are from the uh, Royal Australian Air Force. Okay. Um, at the back here, there's a cupboard that's from the Norwegian Air Force, and above it, a delft plate from Holland. And then on the side, that side, there's a small plaque on the wall. It's from Poland. Um, and on the other side, there's a brass plate on the wall 
that uh, commemorates Canadians. Okay. Uh, down in the sanctuary itself, there's a very large wooden collection plate. That's the wood that's come from South Africa. It's very, very rare. It's no longer allowed to be used for anything. Wow. Um, it's, um, it grows in the Transvaal in one place only. Okay. So that came in from South Africa. And our last one through recently, two, 2016, was the uh, Infant of Prague up there on the shelf. Yep. And they came, that came in um, from uh, Chechnya and Slovakia together, so the, the Czechoslovaks. Oh, okay. So I said the only two were the Free French and the, the uh, New Zealanders. I have no idea why. I've missed out one. There's a Belgian one up there. That's the eagle on the side. Yes. And it says the Belgium Air Force remembers. Okay. I do not know why, because I, I don't... Our history things, our notes and things we have, don't go that far back to tell us that maybe something was offered and didn't arrive. Or we don't know. Right. All I know is that when we talk about the gifts that are in here that have been donated by allied countries, those are the two that haven't got anything here. Okay. It's strange with the Free French, though, because René Michotte, uh, a Frenchman, was one of the instigators of the building yeah. of the original chapel. Yeah, exactly. So it's rather odd. Yeah. Um, and the New Zealand squadron was based here for um, several months in 1943. Yes. Uh, and also people like, you know... Uh, uh, Alan Deere oh, was, yes. the, wing, was yes. the commander of yeah. the wing. And, and I mean, we've got in here, just to be able to show you, really, um, a list of, of the ones I've been able to find. New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand. Where are they? I bet it's gone. There we go. The New Zealand Airmen. So you can see, those are the ones we know definitely are from New Zealand. Yes. And I've put at the bottom to say that there are undoubtedly more New Zealanders there, but because I don't have a date of birth, a place of birth for some of them, I would have no idea. Well, I'm sure we could find more information for you. Mm. Um, we've, I've got a very good network of researchers and historians. So. Well, we need to know the ones that are up there on what's up there. Yeah. This is taken from that. And you can see we've got the squadrons down there as well. But equally, we are looking to see if there are ones that, since the end of the war have been discovered that they did actually die yeah. flying from Group 11 yeah. and died on active mission. Right. And it's why we're producing a new or an additional memorial book to put the names in. Goodness me, I've just noticed Pilot Officer Edward Church's 74 Squadron, he was from my hometown. There you go. He was one of the two Battle of Britain uh, pilots from Cambridge. And the other one was Edward Wells, who commanded the... Um, uh, Hawkeye Wells, who commanded the Fire Squadron, mm -hmm. so they were both in the Battle of Britain, and Edward Churches didn't uh, didn't come home. So, no. well, actually, <laughs> Wells didn't either because he kept on, kept on in the Air Force, but he, he survived the war. Yes, um, and I said they're here. If you go and look up the name in our blue book file that's there, yeah. you'll find. If you look at the front, they'll again give you the date of when they di he died and and a small biography about him. Okay. So you can go and have a look in a minute if you want to. I will, yeah. Just to see what there is. Yeah. Um, but I said that I've put down here. On all of them, it says the same. There may be others, but okay. I can't tell that. In fact, somebody came in, a Belgian uh, gentleman who came in and gave me two more Belgians, which I've added right. to the Belgian list. Right. Well, so, I'll... useful. Come and have a little look. Yeah. Actually, oh, yes, please and, do. And then I'll see if there's any more that we need to add. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, yep. let's put this back in there and then we'll come up and you tell me the name again. 
and we'll find it. Sure. And you can tell us if we're right as well what we've got. Well, I might be able to. Tell. <laughs> well, you can. You might learn something you didn't know. Yeah, so exactly. You yeah. Never know. So 74 Squadron was based here at Biggin Hill, or would it have been on a... It would have been in various places, because almost none of them lived here forever, if you like. Yeah, they keep um, moving about. 92 Squadron was probably the longest serving squadron here, yep. um, and that is actually 92 Squadron's standard, oh, yes. uh, because that was what was laid up here yep. at the time when the station closed. Oh, not going there, going here, sorry. So give me his name again. Uh, churches, every churches. So, alphabetical at the front. There we are. Yep. So if I go across, he died the 19th of April, 1941. So he died a year after the Battle of Britain. Yep. And he's on page 83. So let's go back to page 83 and see what we can find. And there he is. Yeah. So if you want to read, born in Cambridge, New Zealand... Yep. There you are. So if you want to read through and see, it turns over the page, obviously, and tells you more there. And you are welcome, if you want to, to photograph it. Thank you. But if you know about it already, you probably don't need to. Well, I, I, I do know about him, but there may be information. Well, have a look and tell me so, yeah, if there's you. anything more, and then come back to me again. A couple more things to say to you. Sure. We do have a kneeler that is yeah. made especially for New Zealand. All oh, right. And there will also be one of a squadron around um, okay. wherever the squadron is. Oh, sorry, I can hold it down. Um, the other thing was, to finish off the story about the, uh, the building being burnt and nothing being found, three years later, after the uh, fire, um, 1949, they were beginning to clear away the rubble. And the workman who was using this small digger uh, stopped digging because he found he'd lifted up a book. Okay. So he got out to have a look. And it proved to be the original Bible. Oh, wow. With no damage by fire or water, just slightly damp. Wow. He took it home and left it to, to dry in the cupboard, and it did come back into here. It was read from until uh, this became um, uh, part of Bromley Council, and then it was taken to put in a display room in there. That has now been redone, and the Bible is now up there on the altar. Oh, wow. That is the original. Incredible. And the only other thing they also found was a bit of charred wood. Fortunately, it's still able to be read. It was what was over the arch of the doorway going in, and yeah. it had the saying, a prayer over it. And on that door, as you came in there, yeah. it has the prayer on it. Oh, right. The original prayer. Okay. But I say, if you tell me which squadron it was you were looking at, just... Uh, 485. Oh, right. just what, um, the New Zealand squadrons were 485 and 486, I think. Let's go and have a look. That's because you should be able to find one of those as well. 485 is this side, isn't it? Uh, 486s, so I guess. 486s, let's have a look and see. So somewhere along these. Six, Where's 485? Oh, yes. And here's 485. So yep. you want to see there? Yep. And there's they should be in order of what's up there on the board, but often we've had children in. They right, take them okay. off and don't put them back prop in the same place. Here's 4 yeah. Okay. So, did you... Were you born in the village? And, no, no, no. I came 43 years ago okay. to Biggin Hill. I was born, actually, in the middle in Worcester, in the Midlands. Um, 
My dad was in the RAF, but that, that's my only connection. Okay. I came here because someone I was working with um, said to me, would I like to come to a carol service? And I said, I'd love to, like carols. And I'd recently moved, so I didn't know any of the churches locally. Yeah. And her husband um, sang in the choir here and played the organ. Yeah. And on that particular Christmas, he was playing the organ. I came here with her, and it sounds a silly thing to say in a way, but I just fell in love with the place. Right. And I've been here ever since, really. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah. It's um, yeah, a real passion for the place and for making sure that it will continue into perpetuity, both as a place of worship and as a place of um, memorial. Yeah. Awesome. So, yes. And I said, we've increased the activity, the, the, the active part of the worship, certainly. But our group has got very small indeed. Uh, there's only 89 of us now. Okay. Um, and, of course, age bears a part in that. Mm. Yeah. But um, we just recruit new people through as ashes are buried, all baptisms, um, all funerals. They are all asked to become a member of the Friends to help to continue the care of the place. Okay. So, yeah. There was a remembrance book in the original chapel. Just like the boards, it was added to as deaths came in. Uh, when this chapel was built, a new memorial book was put together. But like that, it changed. And this time, they are in a calendar order from January the 1st to December the 31st. Yes. And it didn't matter what year you died, it mattered your day. Okay, yeah. When the RAF were here, they would come through every morning, turn the page and read the names out. If there were no deaths on that day, it would be open at the next page of deaths, but they would come through every time and say, praise be to God, no lives lost today. Right. We still open that book every day. The names are read out. I read them out this morning for the children who were here. And on a Sunday, we say prayers for those names there on a the Sunday, but also for the Monday, because the museum and the chapel are closed on Monday. But it is a perpetual annual loop that they are never, ever forgotten. Excellent. That's really special. So that's, um, special. yeah, it is. Yeah. Could you read the names for today I certainly for me? can. It's not today, in fact, because we have no one today yeah. and we have no one tomorrow. Uh, but on July the 1st, <clears throat> we would say, today, the 1st of July, we honour and remember Sergeant Frederick Aaron Thornburgh of 91 Squadron, Group Captain Philip Reginald Barwell, DFC, Flying Officer William Arthur Charles Phillips of 26 Squadron. Flying Officer George Edward, Edward Koscht, 3 Squadron. Rest in peace, sirs. And that will be done every day. Right. Special. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If I have a group in in the morning, I will always come to read the book. And it always is, there's always absolute silence after it. And people are thinking... My word, it is right. They are. I mean, this is, you know, say, you can see 1941, 42, 43, and 44. Yeah. So one for each of the years yeah. there. Amazing, isn't it? Mm. Gosh. But it's beautifully done. They're all decorated the same. Yes, yeah. And then these, you'll find these everywhere. Our colours over there, exactly the same. Um, these particular ones were all done by the Embroiders Guild. But the, the Neelers were all done by serving officers here, men and women, oh, right. and by the villagers of Biggin Hill. Um, about 60 of them were made at the beginning, over two years, for the 30th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. And then after that, the others were made over time, with the last one being made in 92, when the officers' assessment centre closed. Okay. 
and the um, the lady who made it, Margot, still comes to services on a Sunday. Wow. Nice. Right. As I said, there's a lot in here. <laughs> Condensing yeah. it down is, yeah. you know, there's the story about the piano, the eagle over there, that every single thing has a story. Yeah. Um, it's a, yes, and it just depends where people's interests lie. Yeah. They'll come and ask a question and, yeah, yeah. we'll answer it and that'll be that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Cheers. Enjoy the rest of your trip around the country. I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> and hopefully the weather will stay reasonable for you. Yeah, it's so been good you so get far. Good air, so you get good um, air displays to see. Yeah, exactly. Because the weather does affect those quite badly. Yeah. Before you do leave, could I ask you to sign a visitor's book at the sure. back, please? Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Because we go through those and knock off and list up um, how many came from each country at the moment. It's interesting because for quite a, a block of time, we have very few visitors from abroad. Yeah. And of course, during COVID, we had very few visitors at all. Yes. Um, but we're beginning now. I mean, um, in the last month, uh, in May, uh, we had 18 Americans come through okay. in just those four weeks, oh, good. which is quite unusual. Um, and I said, we just, yeah, just keep, I keep a record of those who come through from the Allied countries as well as any interesting comments made. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that this show might bring a few more from around the world. That would be lovely. Listeners all around the world. So. Oh, that would be really good. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you again. Thank you, Margaret. Cheers. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Amen.